started. Um, hi, everybody, and welcome to the third um, presentation of Visor for the 2019 semester. Um, I'd like to start by uh, acknowledging that we are currently on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Um, and uh, just before we start, some like housekeeping stuff. The bathroom is all the way at the end of the gallery. Just keep going, it's on your left. Um, there is some artworks on the floor there in the form of lights, so just watch your step. It could be um, a hazard. Um, yeah, um, I would also like to thank the Ore Gallery. Uh, Denise uh, Reiner isn't here right now, she's normally around for this, but uh, they uh, very, very generously gift us the space, and I also should plug that there is a fundraiser coming up on the th April 13th, the, uh, their annual dance-a-thon, which I, I don't know that the website is launched yet, but um, I'll remind everybody about that next week. Um, <laughs> so the advisor is a para-academic free school started by Anne Jo Hall and Dan Edelman in 2012, I believe. Um, and it's an exchange free school, so everybody is volunteering their time to make all of these presentations happen, the speakers. Um, everybody listening, and the gallery gives us the space. Um, and so it's just a place for us to have conversations outside of the institution around academic topics. Um, so today we have Nermeen Gogolich uh, and Jerry Zaslav, and they're going to be speaking in conversation about transition and identity in a post-Yugoslav environment. Um, Nermeen Gogolich is a Vancouver-based writer from Oh, I'm not going to pronounce this right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> From Croatia, um, <laughs> with a special interest in identity politics and the city. Um, he's currently a student at the graduate liberal studies at in graduate liberal studies at Simon Fraser University. And uh, Jerry Zaslav is a professor emeritus at SFU. Uh, is a teacher and writer who studied comparative literature at Western Reserve University and the University of Washington. Since 1965 at Simon Fraser University has taught literature and humanities influenced but not limited by the traditions of the relationship of social radicalisms and the arts, the worlds of psychoanalysis and aesthetics. He is the founding director of the Institute for the Humanities and has published numerous essays and monographs on the subjects he loves and teaches. Currently, Simon's fellow in graduate liberal studies a volume, and a volume of his collected, uh, collected essays, Untimely Passages, Dossiers from the Other Shore, from 1965 to 2015 is in preparation. Um, so I'll let them take it from here. Okay, uh, well, I'll just start with telling you what the idea is. We'll try to chronologically lead you through a certain part of history and, uh, and identities associated with that, uh, talking about uh, former Yugoslavia mostly. Um, and I think uh, there's one thing that is very important when we talk about former Yugoslavia, and that is to give you a, a short introduction into the geopolitical reality uh, that was that of former Yugoslavia. So the country was created during the Second World War. <clears throat> it came out of a, a struggle, an anti-fascist struggle, and, and the, the identity of that country was based on that anti-fascism, and on the other hand, it was also based on the pan-South Slavic idea. So the idea of bringing together the South Slavic na nations uh, and the platform for that was the cultural and historical overlap among the peoples of the South Slavic region. <coughs> uh, 
for us, um, there's this huge misconception, uh, very popular and widely spread in the West when people think about former Yugoslavia. And this is something that you have to talk about when you're given a chance to talk publicly. And that misconception is that Yugoslavia was a part of the Eastern Bloc, and that wasn't the case. Uh, Yugoslavia, since 1948, uh, after the fallout between Stalin and Tito, who was our leader at the time, is no longer a part of the Soviet cultural and political sphere of influence, but finds its own place uh, in, in the international political arena. And this place is a place of neutrality when considering the East-West dichotomy, the, 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 the Cold War dichotomy. Uh, Yugoslavia at the time uh, uses this position of neutrality to build bonds with other people in the similar position and other states in the similar position. These are mostly states that have been exposed to severe uh, colonial uh, exploitation through their, uh, through their history. And um, this all ends up in the non-aligned movement, which is formed in Belgrade in 1961. <clears throat> and the idea of this non-aligned movement is to give voice to those who have no voice, to give voice to those who have been experience, uh, experiencing colonial exploitation for the better part of, 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 of their history. Um, it is a country between East, between East and the West, uh, uh, and it is a country that, uh, whose citizens, the Yugoslav nationals, uh, had the unique privilege of uh, traveling both East and West without facing uh, any significant uh, bureaucratic hurdles. So it's a specific position in that sense, but there's another thing that I believe might be very important, and that is the fact that the country was open to everyone. And it was a unique space in Europe where those from East and West could meet in rather casual circumstances. Uh, and uh, those casual circumstances have a lot to do with our coast, the Adriatic coast. People would come there during summertime <laughs> for their vacations, and you would have people from the Eastern and Western Bloc uh, spending time together in, 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 in Yugoslavia, and one of these people was Jerry on two occasions <laughs> in the 60s and on three occasions, excuse me, Jerry, uh, once in the 60s and once in the 70s, if I recall that correctly, when he came as a person from America, but also Canada, Canada uh, as well. Uh, and maybe, maybe if, I don't know if he wants to tell us maybe something about his uh, experience there and, and, and how, he's, how he viewed this this, this, this state at that moment as, as a person coming from the West and having a lot of his interests in the East. Oh, I don't know if you, you want to... You have more to say, right? I do, but I don't know. Should we go through all of it right away? We can, yes. Uh, uh, I just wanted to... Yeah, uh, so this specific position that Yugoslavia had in the international political arena ended uh, uh, quite quickly after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I think uh, that this, this fall of the Berlin Wall that ended the, and marked an <coughs> end of an era and, and marked uh, in many ways the end of the Cold War is significant because it seems that in the collective memory of the younger generations, this is more a part of uh, pop culture than it is a part of geopolitics. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so the end of the Cold War is significant for a number of reasons, but one of them is definitely 
the fact that it might have been a cold war, but it was war nonetheless, and it ended. <laughs> and when wars end, somebody's on the losing side. And whoever finds it himself or themselves on the losing side has to, um, has to bear the consequences of their loss. And these consequences uh, were the consequences of a neo-colonial experience uh, that were portrayed and presented to us as a part of the political transition. So unlike the earlier conflicts in the 20th century and earlier conflicts in our history in general, there was no territorial pretension. This idea this, uh, of, of taking the land once the war is ended is no longer important now what is important is to take what you want from those lands through the techniques and strategies of neocolonialism. Um, so for us, uh, this, for those in the Eastern Bloc, because Yugoslavia was not, as we said, part of the Eastern Bloc, uh, the transition uh, is similar to ours, but different in the terms of them being more open to embracing it, because it, uh, it marked the end of the police state and it marked the beginning of the freedom to travel around the world for those who were behind the Iron Curtain. And also it was, a, it was a peaceful transition. For us, it wasn't a peaceful transition. Unfortunately, it coincided with the Civil War. Um, and that Civil War started in Slovenia first, spread it, and then it found its way from, from the west of what once was Yugoslavia towards the east. Uh, what is important uh, for, for, for identity when these uh, things start occurring is the fact that this identity that was uh, nurtured in former Yugoslavia, the identity of, uh, that came with the policy of brotherhood and unity, the, was no longer adequate. It was deemed inadequate by all those who were in the position of power. So all the newly created states are created uh, out of a right-wing revolution. There are nationalistic regimes, uh, all of them, on every side. So if one wants to participate in the conflict on whichever side you find yourself, you are promoting in a way, or you are being used for a nationalistic agenda. Um, and uh, when a war starts, it is recommended to choose sides, because if you don't choose sides, uh, then you're against everyone. Uh, and it takes a large amount of civic courage to, 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 to choose a position of neutrality when one finds himself uh, in a conflict like that. Uh, so, Yugoslavia, so we can't really talk about Yugoslavia as a, as a society, an egalitarian society. And in my opinion, the idea of egalitarian society is more of a philosophical question than a political one. But we can definitely regard Yugoslavia as a place uh, that was less unequal than many others, and definitely less unequal than those countries surrounding Yugoslavia. So this homogen society, uh, when the war starts, starts cracking, and it starts cracking along the lines of nationality, religion, and class. And while it takes quite a bit of time to those, for those cracks along the lines of class to appear, because it takes time for them to, 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 have, to, to obtain uh, wealth and to be able to show the wealth, that takes a little bit of time. But the, the cracks along the national and religious lines uh, show up right away. And, and there is a couple of tools that were used. There's a number of tools that were used uh, to enforce these cracks in our society. But 
the most important one, in my opinion, when we talk about the religion, the religious cracks is that of implementing catechism. And now I'm talking only about Croatia, not the whole Yugoslavia. This is my experience because I am from Croatia. I am not Croatian, <laughs> but I am from Croatia. So uh, I was going to school at that time. I was eight years old when the war started. And there's a number of anecdotes that I could tell you, but I'll tell you just a few. And one of those is that the, when, when we were in school, obviously the common thing was early in the morning when the professor walks in, you stand up and you greet your professor with good morning comrade, because that is the custom, and you do it every day. And then one day you do it, and then the professor says, oh, wait, uh, you know, I was telling you to do this for two and a half years, but now forget about it. We have something new for you. It is no longer comrade. You will call me teacher from now on. And obviously you don't understand it. You're just a kid, but what else? You do it anyways. But uh, going back to the religious cracks in the society, they, they were implemented through the tools of, uh, one of the most important tools was uh, the fact that Catechism, Catholic Catechism was implemented, introduced into the school system. This is obviously a capitulation of the secular state uh, by definition, uh, but also it's a, it, it, it exposes your otherness. In my case, personal case, uh, I come from a Muslim background. I was not aware of that because nobody in my family was religious and it was not important for us, but, but then it became important because I went to school and I didn't apply for Catholic catechism, obviously, and everybody else almost did. Some other people didn't. And this is where the, these religious cracks start appearing very early on. And it is pretty concerning and tragic in terms of it being implemented in this early stage of your life. The national cracks uh, start appearing because of two things mainly. One of them is that we were talking about early 90s. so the media uh, outlets are those classic ones, television, radio, and the printed media. And within a month or two, they are in the hands of those who are creating this new identity, this new narrative. Uh, and the other one is that the visibility of your nationality that wasn't present before, or wasn't that important, now becomes an issue. All of your IDs that you uh, get from this newly created state have your nationality on your ID, on your passport, on your citizenship papers. Uh, uh, even in school, uh, the teacher's book has your name and then underneath there's your nationality. So everybody's aware of it, you're aware of it. Maybe not everybody's interested in it, but you know that it is there and, and it is a, 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 huge, a huge problem. So you have to decide your, uh, at that point that do you want to embrace this new uh, national identity that is offered to you. And this new national identity is, is the same as nationalism. It is a national identity based on nationalism on every side. And if you find yourself in a country, because these new borders appear, and you find yourself locked within a new country, um, and let's say if you are uh, a Croatian in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and obviously everybody wants to be, a, everybody wants an identity. We feel sheltered by the identity. We feel, obviously, we're talking about a, a common identity, and we feel the warmth and the security of that identity. And to step out of those, to find yourself on the other side of the fence, is to find yourself uh, practically homeless in, in, in those terms. And uh, the problem in former Yugoslavia was this, uh, the problem for those who were creating this new 
reality of ours was the fact that there was pockets of ethnicities, different ethnicities all around, and it was not a completely, or not even a very much uniformed um, uh, geographical place in terms of the ethnic structure of the population of the new, new nation states. And the way they wanted to resolve this problem was obviously this terrible, terrible idea uh, of relocating population behind these new nation state borders. And this was done by, by the policies of ethnic cleansing. The whole term ethnic cleansing was coined during the, our conflict, unfortunately, and that is something that will <laughs> mark us in a way. These things have been happening even earlier in Second World War, in the First World War, in Second World War, absolutely. But usually the war ends, we have new borders, and then people are relocated. Here, the war started at the same time you have new borders, so there's not a peaceful moment. It is, the war is going on. So the same thing is going to happen, but it will be enforced by, by, by severe, severe violence. Uh, this is more or less what I wanted to say right now. I will tell you some other things later on, but definitely, Jerry, you should, you should, you should tell some of the things, especially, excuse me, the thing that becomes very problematic for us the idea of cultural history and national history and the idea of cultural identity and national identity. So the cultural history being common and in place long before the idea of the uh, national state uh, then becomes um, a thing that you compete for because you want to take this, claim this cultural history for your own so to be able to build the national identity or the platform of national identity along the lines that prove your cultural history. So uh, that is something that Jerry was mentioning when we were preparing, and I think it's pretty important for, for, for our talk. You can see what um, <clears throat> Nero has, how he speaks about living history, that he's lived through it, right? And let me just kind of riff off of that, that idea that where you're, where you, in my courses on the city in history over the years, which I don't do anymore, I always begin by saying something like, um, des fate is where you're born. You can't change that. It's a Greek idea. And the Northern Europeans took over that idea in the worship of Greek. Uh, state building. Um, but destiny is something else. Destiny is, 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 is inbuilt. It's the inbuilt world. It's what happens after you come into the world. It's a bit of a uh, Hesiodic Greek idea, but it's also somewhat Nietzschean. But the, the point is that the built world is the cultural world, even though it's got its uh, segmentation, its fragmentation, its structures through institutions that are political. Uh, Walter Benjamin makes a very important point here about in the critique of violence. There's a difference between, in German language, Macht, which is power, and Herrschaft, which is domination. So what I would like to, you know, just sketch in, this is just a sketch. Uh, of course, yes. Uh, uh, we're going to be talking about this more um, uh, in the future. That it's a topomorphic political idea. And, even, and the Balkans, you can even in the language Balkanization, you, some of you know Balkanization, that the language of the 
Central Europe, what I would call, we don't even know where Central Europe is. When I grew up and did graduate work on Russia, learned Russian, uh, went, to, went to the Czech Republic often, uh, did work on Germany, you come up with, you come across this idea of Central Europe and you think, well, where in the hell is it? What is Central Europe? And you realize that it's a hegemonic concept created by Charlemagne, Carl the Great, actually in 800, to in install a Germanic concept of Europe, right? And the fate of that, that Germanic concept of Central Europe, as it created empires, right, whether that includes Spain, included the Islamic people, and eventually it would include the Turkic, Turkish people, the, um, the Islamic people, the Central Europe was a place, <clears throat> excuse me, where um, fate and destiny coincided. So let me tell you a little bit what I mean by that, okay? First of all, <clears throat> the old city-state uh, was the utopian idea of the, of, the West, of the Northern Europeans and the Italians too. So the concept of the urban, of the city, became the imaginary utopia of how you center the idea of the state. It has to be a center, right? Geo, geo, logic, not geologically, but uh, geomorphically. There has to be a center. There has to be a city. What you also need in, in terms to, to create a, a founding myth, a founding symbolic order of a state and a nation and a culture that comes together, um, and you're lucky if they all come together, because <laughs> they don't. Um, even today, in the FY, the former Yugoslavia, right? Um, which is an interesting concept. When I, just a little anecdote here. Gr growing up, the Yugoslavia became a kind of test case of authoritarian or libertarian uh, socialism. So most of us wanted to go to Yugoslavia because it was a, a, a concept in the making. A yeah, utopian yeah. concept. As in the they say, right? the best attempt at socialism in yeah. the 20th century. So, you know, if you're an anarchist like I am part of the time, if you're a socialist, if you're a democratic socialist, if you're a libertarian, whatever, the Korchula program on the, on, in, uh, on the Praxis the, School. The, the Praxis School was a kind of outpost that a lot of intellectuals, a lot of people uh, would go, go to. That's a little bit of a personal rec uh, uh, note. Okay, so what do you need to form a state? Well, you need the, the institutionalization of literacy. In other words, you need schooling for elites, okay? Um, you need the creation of a legal system based on constitutions, based on law, okay? Just sketching all this in. You need population growth around an urban center. You need a fairly advanced state of agriculture through the production of metals, jewelry, mining, and more than simply subsistent agriculture but you need agriculture that can be uh, exported and, and traded, okay. So the proto-states of Africa, but for example, which were imperial colonized by the Northern Europe, by the Europeans, were already proto-states in the sense in which I'm trying to describe them, right? Um, what you also, and, and I'm, I'm leading up to the point. Here, let me tell you the, 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 the punchline of the joke. In Trieste now, the Chinese are, are bringing, go, go online, you can see it, huge liners of, of Chinese tourists to Trieste because they want a, a, a new, the, the old Marco Polo line that went from Asia, China, to Venice, and to, to uh, 
the Mediterranean, is now being built by the Chinese who want a road that comes from China all the way to Europe, right? So history is being <laughs> repeated itself around the, t around the terms that I'm sketching in for you. So you need the capacity to deliver goods along transportation routes. The problem with the, ge the geography of, of uh, Croatia, Slovenia, uh, Macedonia, Bulgaria, was that it was not a good place for transportation of goods. You have water on one side, you have mountains on the other, you have arid, dry climate in, in, part of the, in part of the world. You have the Greeks on the south, the Macedonians on the south, and how do you find, create a workable constitutional state out of this geopolitical uh, concept? Um, you, want, you want also to be able to trade goods and now also storage, store goods along the way so that the, so that the, um, the wealth of centralizing, dominating states can be um, uh, maintained along the way. Why? Because you need, to, you need armies along the way that can be served, right? And can be, um, sub, and so you, you need armies to carry the goods with it. So therefore you need transportation, right? You follow? Okay. The Balkans <clears throat> were a problem for the empire building Western Europeans. You can imagine the geopolitical divides this way. The, the west of the Rhine, France, England are the constitutional states. East of the Rhine, what do you have there? You have Germany fighting for two centuries to create a workable constitutional state. This is what is in Benjamin's, if you want to read his critique of domination, his critique of power. It's, it's in that little essay of his. Okay, but what you need as well is a military organization that goes beyond mere warriors, right? Um, the, the myth about Nero's world was that they were a warrior culture. Yeah, an imposed myth. A, what? An imposed myth. An imposed myth, exactly. This was a touristic myth created by the, the West. Of course. Right? In yeah. the 19th century when romantic nationalism and the, the ethnic nationalism, romantic nationalism, was in the British tourism already began in the 19th century to go into the Balkans, going to Greece. Okay, so what you do, what you need in the formation of a, this is a sketch now, right? In the formation of a state, you need a division of labor that goes beyond the household, that goes beyond the feudal, feudal remnants of the ancient despotic societies. And even Marx, remember, what did Marx say about the, the Eastern societies? Right? They were Asiatic apathy. They were backward societies. So this, this political naming, construction of a symbolic area, where is Central Europe? Right? Where is that? My, that's my thing. Where is it? We don't know where it is. Okay. The symbolic construction of an Asian world, a Slavic world, a world in the South, which was, of course, threatened by the Ottoman Empire. Right? And the, the construction of, of um, Nero's state is a construction that's made out of salvaging what was left of statehood after the decline of the Ottoman Empire. Right? And here we talk about um, not only the centralization and monopolization of violence in the idea of a central state, but we also need to construct some kind of ideology based on religion or sacred symbolic places of, of um, congregation, 
places where you can believe that what you are, uh, that the symbolic order that you have is not just a cultural and historical force that assimilates ethnic, um, ethnic peoples, um, political peoples. You need to construct a social state. And this is what Tito, in a way, did later on. Yes. Later on, constructed the ideal utopia of a social state. Okay, but what you need to do <clears throat> is to give that social state, the sim you know, like what we do now, uh, is to give, them, give it a semblance, not only of order and coherence and policing minorities and ethnic identity. When you talk about identity, I wanted to reach into my pocket here and look at what my identity was. Well, identity these days in a mass culture, as Adorno points out, is everybody wants what we want, what we have. You know, this is happening in Bulgaria. It's happening in, in the transition from a, a socialist state or a proto-socialist state to a state that's beholden to the banking culture, like in Greece, right? Yeah, and that term transition is a very convenient one because it doesn't have an expiry date. I think that is that's what, yeah, uh, exactly. important, maybe. In Every, everything is in transition. Okay, forever. so my point here is that the modern socialist state still had to deal with taxation, passports, charters, identity card, identity, would you... Absolutely, it, it, and in, in Yugoslavia, obviously, also, uh, then you have to find tools to deal with uh, the, the pressing uh, and, and uh, national question within a multinational state. Mm -hmm. and the, the two tools that were used in Yugoslavia to try and answer to this, give an answer to this very complex question, were those of the policy of brotherhood and unity that was leaning on the experience of the Second World War, which was the experience of the anti-fascist uh, uh, anti-fascist resistance and, 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 and the people's liberation struggle. And to form an identity along those lines, um, it, what was very important was the visibility of that identity in a public space, and that was done through numerous monuments that were uh, remembering the victims. Because these monuments, that's important for Yugoslavia as well, because people often think about it as a communist state, um, but its identity and is an anti-fascist identity and a socialist identity, but also uh, those people who were fighting for this liberation, those anti-fascists, were not only communists, because obviously, yes, every communist is an anti-fascist, but not every anti-fascist is a communist, because you can be a Democrat, an anti-fascist, or you can be not even interested in politics, but be uh, an anti-fascist along the moral lines yeah. of your identity. Yeah, so the problem then becomes, how do you, tr how do you create a modern state out of the remnants of feudal, feudal peasant culture, um, which was certainly in the, in the background of the former Yugoslavia? How do you create a standing army out of this that joins all of the ethnic and political. Um, so in other words, the consolidation and centralization of a transcendent rational concept like a state becomes problematic. Of course. Okay. But at the same time, the roots of a, commu what, of a communal culture, I have a problem with that <laughs> word, um, the roots of a communal culture are still organized around, around what I call um, uh, birthmarks, color, shape of your body, who you are, who you are, your name, who they, who, who everybody else thinks you are, who they think you are. So, in other words, you need a transcendent, rational concept 
of citizenship that goes beyond ethnicity. So what does that mean? It means it has to go beyond blood, clan, kinship, the kinds of local violence that, um, you know, for example, the, the, the murder of, in um, Utrecht is now, being, is now being discussed in terms of uh, family violence, feud violence, retaliation. Right, I don't. We don't know what it is, but it's right there in front of us. And what does it mean? You know, it means resentment, jealousy, um, sexual uh, questions. It doesn't mean just putting on a, a a costume. You know, it goes beneath that into the body-based question of who you are, how you look, how you are recognized, and so forth. So what I'm trying to get at here is, identity becomes property, right? Identity is individualized around the, the self, which is a form of property. And who owns the self? Who owns that, that, um, that world? It's not only who owns, who, who votes. It's also about, in the past, who owned animals? You know, wandering cultures, hordes of, of uh, 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 peoples who had horses and cattle, that's their property. And when the state comes along and universalizes that property, you know, as belonging to the state rather than to the commune, right? In Russia, the mirror, right? And you saw that was going on in, in the Ukraine, for example. I did a footnote to that nice introduction you gave. I started out in Russian and German, right? And slowly, as I did, you know, did a lot of work on Russia, I slowly moved west, right? Because you begin to realize that what was happening in the, in the uh, Central Europe and West was a, a, a global European phenomenon, which is happening again today, you know, in Latvia, in Lithuania. Okay, so what I guess I can end here, um, that people who grow up in, in what Marx called Asiatic, Asiatic apathy do not have slaves, they have animals. It's the prototypical, centralizing political state, the, 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 the political class that will begin to own slaves and then give citizenship in some way to those few say, slaves who can be assimilated into the public order. This is Aristotle and Plato, you know, in a, with a vengeance. Okay, so uh, let me just end here. Oh yeah, on the question of, of uh, of remittance culture, the, the, the Yugoslavia that I went to in the in the 60s um, and 70s, uh, you would see um, tourism, but that's where you could meet Polish people, right? Yes. In the campgrounds, I had my kids with my family with me. We went to Greece. You meet Polish people because Polish people were allowed to travel south, right? And in um, and have holidays. You also met German people who were only on the coast, right, where the spot, where the, the, the luxuries were. Um, but you also um, knew, knew at the time that there was a remittance culture, and that was where Yugoslavian workers were going north to earn money to bring, which is what Filipino women do now, with Eastern, with, uh, uh, in India, there's a huge remittance culture of Bangladeshis coming south and working. And um, even Arab states now have an enormous remittance culture. If you look at the world order in terms of the amount of money that is sent back home in the remittance culture, the gross national product of these, these states 
is dependent on these working women and working people, India as, 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 as well, uh, to send back the money, you know, uh, for, to maintain that state nation, to maintain that state nation. So the globalization of what I call remittance culture is a, is a powerful factor in understanding, you know, the, the decline of the center, decline of urbanization. Does that make any sense, what I'm saying? That, 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 me. Yeah, go ahead. No, it's like, uh, I mean, this is very important what uh, Jerry said, obviously, but, uh, and in those, um, um, just relating to what he said, I think uh, what is important is that when one thinks about the history of the Balkans, then he's faced with the history of colonization, colonial exploitation, that is all, that has always been our history, and that is our history right now, but it is neo-colonial, yeah. not much different. Uh, and the, the, the important thing about Yugoslavia is that Yugoslavia represents um, this rare intermezzo in the colonial history of the Balkans and the, in the colonial history of the South Slavic people when for 45 years we obtained actual state sovereignty and actual economic sovereignty and within those terms within that framework one can build an actual identity that is theirs and not imposed on them as this as is the case in Europe because when one thinks about Europe what Jerry was saying what is a political term what is a geographical term this is very important when one says Europe you have to think along the lines of politics and political terms not geographical and also uh, a good example for that just a banal but not a bad example is the fact that uh, everybody considers Prague to be an Eastern European city and nobody thinks that about Vienna and when you look at the map of Europe Vienna is more to the east than Prague is so there's just an example and in our position this identity the balkanization that Jerry was talking about uh, there is also a term of self-balkanization mm -hmm. that is where that is a situation when a, this identity that is tailored for you in the West uh, is adopted by those who it was tailored for and then you start regarding yourself as such and obviously a friend of mine <laughs> once when talking about this said uh, the left, the right, uh, people on the left, on the right consider you in the Balkans in the same way they, if they are on the left of the political spectre, they will maybe use exotic when they refer to you, and if they're on the right, they will say primitive, but exotic and primitive, very thin line. Exotic is not a compliment, it's an insult, if anything. It's a coded language <clears throat> that puts you in your place, that tells you that you are not like them, that tells you that you are less European. I, in, in my art world past, I remember a wonderful installation by an African artist in Nigeria who put on an installation showing the, the northern civilizer as exotic, right? Lovely. So, so the installation was reversing the, the stereotype. And um, it, it was an extraordinary uh, attempt to reverse what is obviously um, a colonial imperial history, right? But this bears on something that, that you're saying now. Um, <clears throat> The exotic also includes uh, forms of communication, you know, dialect, yeah. songs, heroic stories, uh, epics, right, uh, language that is, is untranslatable, 
and the scholarly traditions that come along with that, you know, the bardic traditions of, of, uh, of uh, Yugoslavia, and the imposition of what we call the Enlightenment project on proto-states is what we know as the, the, hidden, the hidden source of war making. They eventually it ends, the, it, it eventually, as Fanon talks about colonialization, it eventually ends up with war making. And the test case in Europe has typically been the Balkans. Of right? course. And this, this, this is where, for example, if you want to read further, Chomsky's book here, um, Peace, War, and Dissolution, Dissolution, Yugoslavia, which is a interesting, which is a, 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 typical of Chomsky. You don't argue with Chomsky. <laughs> I once tried to argue with Chomsky, and I already say, wait a minute now. He came here for a talk, and he, we had dinner. And I said, wait a minute, are you sure? Is that Believe me, you don't argue with John. <laughs> <laughs> but the point being that the Balkans were a test case for European hegemony and bombing of Kosovo. <clears throat> right? Of course, which was a precedent in, 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 in the world history, one that was, uh, it was soon followed by, by a similar event that was the, the Second Gulf War. Uh, and people will argue that the, the events of uh, the NATO intervention in the Balkans was just an introduction to what was much more important for those in the position of power in the West, and that was the Second Gulf War and uh, the neocolonial politics employed there later on. Yeah, and it was, <clears throat> you bomb the Bosnian and the Serbians yeah. in order to, what are you saving? You, what are you saving? What are you rescuing in a redemptive you're way? You're pushing you an agenda. Pardon? You're just pushing an agenda. Yes, You're, and you know, and um, a, a footnote to this: a, a friend of mine who is a kind of one of the most. He's now very ill in Berlin. Somebody that I, th when I talk about him, I get a little bit uh, emotional. But he he was tried for treason in Germany for protesting against the the um, allowing German soldiers to be uh, against the basic law the Grundrecht in Germany, to be sent to uh, the Balkans. Mm -hmm. the German, this was against the basic law. He was immediately under the German constitution tried for treason. Right? The case was thrown out in the Berlin, um, province of Berlin. And he was sorry it was thrown out, actually, because he wanted to show that even Habermas defended in the name of, uh, of, of rescuing, this is the the rescuing nature of the West. You're going to rescue the East. We're going to rescue the South, right? We're going to rescue the backward nations. Right? Of course. Right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah that's even, the narrative. Even Habermas went along with this in the German newspapers until, um, and in this book, uh, Chomsky, you know, criticizes that uh, geopolitical uh, aggression against uh, The, the serbo creation uh, the southeastern Europe in general. Yeah, yeah. And one of the aftermaths of this is, is the trauma that were experienced by the people who went through the war. Of course, and that is a, that is a, a big thing, a huge issue, uh, one that we don't know how to resolve, and it's going to take time for sure, and the fact that so many people ended up in exile, either 
And the, when we consider exile, we always associate it with geographical dislocation, and that is always uh, usually the, the fact. But the, the thing is that the, the first uh, part of the exile, the first little bit of it, always happens at that right, right there where you live. Uh, you experience it there. It's the inner or interior exile, where in the case of former Yugoslavia, if you were somebody who was associated, who associated your identity with uh, with the Yugoslav state, uh, when when it was no longer there, and where where you were, when this identity was deemed inadequate and you could not hold on to it anymore because you had to choose a side. At that moment, you, you find yourself in a position in, of exile. You find yourself in your city, in, on your streets, in your home. But you are in a, you're fundamentally you're, you're in a position of exile. And many people left because of that. Those who stayed had to find their ways around these questions. And, and also in that sense, identity being a personal thing in many ways, especially in this uh, advanced phase of, of, of modernity where we can talk about community and everybody does and that's usually because there's no community because when there is a community then you don't talk about it when there's no community you start talking about building one um, and this identity that that you had as an individual or as a citizen more than an individual in that part of our history uh, if you wanted to be Yugoslavian and the, and you had a national, you were a Muslim, let's say, in Croatia, but you wanted, you considered yourself Yugoslavian, but everybody around you considered you a Muslim. So that, at that point, it doesn't really care, mean anything what you, what you think. It is what everybody around you thinks because they, they impose the, the identity on you. They see your name and they associate that name with a certain identity and nobody asks you what you think. It is not important. So there's a lot of trauma, obviously, around, the, around those questions, how that will be confronted, how we will find, or will we ever, hopefully, yes, find a way to deal with this trauma and, and, and tie back these connections that we had during the Yugoslav era. Because when, when, when the civil war started, those in the west of the country, so namely Croatia more than anybody else, started dissociating themselves from Yugoslavia and dissociating themselves from, from the East and trying to rebuild the connections that they had prior to the fall of the empires that were... Because when you think about Yugoslavian uh, geographically about that, that territory, the history, the colonial history that we mentioned earlier can be viewed as a dual history because the, we were exposed to uh, uh, colonial uh, policies from the east as well from as from the west. The Ottoman Empire was present in in what now is the territory of former Yugoslavia for 500 years, and obviously the colonial uh, forces from the west uh, uh, had their say in in Slovenia and and Croatia. And some of the cracks, those religious, obviously, were 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 start started at at around that that period. So. When you, when you think about our territory from here, and it's always <clears throat> more comfortable to think about one's hometown, one's region, or a state when you're far away, they say that dealing with understanding the home nostalgia is the most important uh, um, uh, sentiment. Uh, it's, it's hard to, to be optimistic 
looking at, at our reality right now, but one can only <laughs> hope that it will be better. How exactly, I'm not sure, but, but we will see. We should, quit, but let me just make one point. There's a wonderful book here called Testimony After Catastrophe that I've used in some of my courses. And it, it has, since I'm a, a literary person, but and you want to know how people, what people write and why they write, but what kinds of testimonies do they leave behind? What, what do they talk, how do you talk about it at all, right? And there's a huge industry, post-trauma industry, that you, that you know about, where the, ex, the exile, the, the exile, the homeless, there's different kinds of exile, and a lot of my writing <clears throat> is about that. But it's, there's an exile where you can go home again, right? The Palestinians have no home to go because they never had a home in terms of land, in terms of house, in terms of place, right? They had a, they had a, a, a place that you could now have to call, following a Russian that I like very much, uh, you have to call it the unpassed. How do you, how do you speak in a, te a testimony about your past if your past is now an unpassed? Mm -hmm. It doesn't exist. Yes. And, or how does it exist? And in what way does it exist? If your vernacular, if your language, if your songs now have been politicized to the extent that the, for example, <clears throat> the Austro-Hungarian Empire <clears throat> was the beginning of the end of the Balkans because it was, because that pushed back, what, the Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire, which was encroaching on Bulgaria from the southeast, right? So you have this struggle between empires and empire buildings, which is where the geopolitical reality is now, right? And so the, the question of, of the migration of peoples, the movement of peoples, right? A study that I looked at at one point about the migration of peoples said that if you took <clears throat> If you took the homeless, the landless homeless people who were displaced, displaced, and created a map for them based on the, 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 the square footage that somebody in France or Italy or Germany owned, right? The square footage of those people in, in, in dislocation camps, immigration mm -hmm. camps, would comprise a territory as large as Italy and France. In other words, if you, could, if you could imagine allocating the land from the northern colonial countries to the people who were living in tent cities, they would have <laughs> that much. They would have that much and they could have their own country. Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, the geomorphic translation of power and domination into actual home and land is, is what we're talking about, right? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know if we have time for anything else, or should we just um, go to questions? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, uh, I don't know, uh, something about the identity of the city within this geopolitical moment is also something that maybe yeah. we should talk about at least a little bit. <coughs> and the identity that the city has is the identity of the people who are in that city. Uh, and when you have a lot of people uh, leaving the city and other people coming in, this will change change things for sure and my hometown is uh, Rijeka and it is a city that has been in the last 110 years uh, within four different states and four different political systems so maybe that's interesting for somebody who has been living in a culture that that did not experience anything like that it was always what it is I mean recently at least uh, uh, 
and the problems that the city the city had an identity that was not really talked about too much because it was we were secure about it we knew what it was um, and obviously uh, when we started losing it then we started putting that into into focus and we started talking about our city as a multicultural space as a very tolerant uh, place and it was when compared to other cities in former Yugoslavia and you can talk about all of the cities ex all of the cities in former Yugoslavia as the cities who went through a process of decline in terms of urban identity during the civil war in former Yugoslavia. And that is not obvious for everyone. For me, when I, won when I went to Belgrade, <clears throat> Belgrade looked amazing to me and I was talking to people there and saying, oh, what a wonderful city, very interesting and all this stuff. And then they said, yes, to you it is, because you've been here six days, but if you stay here and you move here, you will understand the problems of our city. And then I recognized in what they were saying to me, what I was saying to people when I talked to them about my city, about Rijeka. <coughs> and, <coughs> you know, that becomes a huge problem, especially for Rijeka, because you're putting in the front rows of uh, city's identity something that relates to the history of the city but does not really relate to the reality and to the present day of our city. And to when you, you want to construct an identity along the lines of promotion and um, it, it becomes very problematic for us, especially because it's a border town, because it's a city that has been uh, occupied by so many in, uh, in recent years, uh, in the last 100 years, and, and it's hard to find an identity. T to talk about Rijeka as a city that is a creation city, yes, that is something that is done today, but it is something that could be argued very much so. <coughs> and uh, the border towns and the border regions are always the, the regions that are m impacted the most when new borders are, are, are drawn and new maps are assembled. Because what, what Jerry was talking about earlier on, when you have cultural history that pre precedes, precedes national precedes. history, uh, then that becomes a problem because, especially in border towns and border, border areas, the two opposing nations that share this wider territory are gonna compete for the same elements of cultural history, trying to obtain them, trying to use them, as a means of legitimacy of, of, of the n nation in construction. And that is something that is happening even right now in Europe. You, Europe has this problem of standardization. We want to standardize everything. Everything has to be along certain rules. <coughs> and then in terms of ethnic identity and national identity, uh, there's a number of programs that allow uh, states around Europe to apply for for cultural heritage uh, in terms of uh, using a p something that is a part of your cultural heritage and, and protecting it as, as your own. And that becomes a problem when you have certain elements that are exactly the same in completely different states. And you have applications coming to Bruxelles from different states. I mean, there's an example that is close, as good as any other one, and, and it is uh, important because it's close to our region. Our region is the northwest of uh, Croatia, 50 kilometers away of the, from the Italian 
border and that's very convenient because it helps to place it on the map you know in Canada when you tell somebody you're from Croatia you have a couple of different responses one of them is oh I don't know where that is I like that a lot the other one is oh I have an idea where it is and the third one is oh and then you say ah it's 50 kilometers from the Italian border and then oh becomes ah <laughs> and that is very convenient in that sense but the, uh, the, the example that I wanted to talk about is um, um, a specific type of wine called Teran that you have in, in Slovenia, in Slovenian part of Istria. That is, this is a peninsula uh, that is shared. Most of it is in Croatia, uh, a little bit in Slovenia. So Slovenians make Teran. Croatians in Istria make Teran as well. But the Slovenians sent their application earlier, and it was approved. And then the Croatian application came for the same part, uh, piece of cultural history. And then the problem obviously occurred, because these people have been doing this wine all of their lives and for generations, and they've been calling it Teran. But now Teran, the name, is occupied. You, ca you have to come up with a new name for your wine. It is the same wine, just the same as the one across the border, but there's the problem. And this is talking about the competition for cultural history uh, in terms of building a national identity, which is, I think, fundamental for, for this discussion and, and many others along these lines, because it is not typical for the Balkans, it is not typical for former Yugoslavia, it occurs all over the world, all the time, or very often. <laughs> Nothing can provoke <clears throat> Um, hostility more in in what uh, Nero is talking about, or in Bulgaria uh, or Poland, than the war of monuments. Um, I can remember going to small towns in in um, the old Czechoslovakia, and depending the, the local resistance to, to fascism or to communism. Um, you could feel it in the monuments. And if you go to the cemeteries, which we don't do in our culture, you know, the cemeteries where the war heroes are buried, <clears throat> was it, excuse me, was it an anti-Nazi? Are they anti-Nazis there? Are they anti-fascists there? Uh, who is buried here and how are they named, right? Yes. And if you go to the cemetery, war cemetery, for example, in Prague, or we used to take students and ask them to, you know, what do you learn here? What do you learn here? Well, one thing you learn is that the Russian occupying army who buried their dead, did you see it out there? Who buried their dead, but they're buried in the ranks. The generals are buried at the front and, and the others are buried at the back. But if you go in the south, where the Ukrainian army had, had liberated the, uh, the Czech, the Czech or that, and the came through the Slovaks. You had a different order of death, right? Because there were a lot of women in the Ukrainian army, right? So you can read the what what we're talking about, the symbolic history, and and, it, and the what I would call following Ernst Bloch and others, the non-contemporaneity of the present. What's left over? How do you read what's hidden? How do you read that, uh, what you did in your, in your uh, Altea, what you were doing, I think, in that Marat Saad? I mean, how do you read the institutions and see what's left over or what's missing and what can be re recovered in some way, 
right, by the, the act of, um, of rehistoricizing the past in, in terms of how it was lived. Does that make any sense? It yeah. does, yeah. of course. Yeah. And also, when talking about <coughs> history, rewriting history in Europe right now yeah. is a very popular thing and a very dangerous one because how the way everybody's doing it in a way, uh, not everybody, but a lot of people, it's like a national sport <coughs> in the Balkans. But not only there, it's done in Hungary, it's done in Italy and so on, and, and uh, the, the, the goal of that rewriting of history is trying to level the, the playing field uh, mm. when talking about uh, fascism and anti-fascism, because obviously uh, even within the anti-fascist movement there were atrocities and crimes, uh, but it goes the, so... The killing of the... Yes, I mean, the enemy, the, the revenge, all these, but it goes so far mm that in Italy, the, the Minister of Interior Affairs, Salvini, who is a, a terrible fascist figure, recently uh, publicly said that uh, Auschwitz is uh, more or less uh, like the Feuerbe, and the Feuerbe are these uh, holes in the ground where people were thrown during the Second World War and just after, and they are uh, one of the tools in the hands of the fascist uh, regimes or neo-fascist regimes in Italy that they use to, to, to try and put a sign of equality between such an <laughs> unbelievable thing uh, as a Holocaust, such a horrifying part of, of world history and what happened after Second World War. And the intention there is to put it alongside, to put it to level this. That is the first step. And then maybe they want to go for, forward and do something even worse than that. But to think about like an official and somebody who is a part of a government in Europe to be able to talk about Auschwitz and Holocaust subsequently in these terms is appalling, but it is the reality of Europe right now. Redice, what did you... What is the reality, you say? The, the reality is the, the, the rewriting of history and the exam, examining that certain part of uh, the 20th century under new terms and conditions and revisiting it uh, rather than reviewing. Yeah, well, it's the cycle of generational trauma, too, of forgetting and, and having, and how do you remember? But that's also the thing that we mentioned earlier on about, about the end of uh, the, the Cold War and, and the fall of the <coughs> Berlin War, which was an important, one of the most important geopolitical uh, uh, events in the second part of the 20th century, but in the memory, in the collective memory of the younger generations, it kind of lingers within the pop culture uh, rather than, than politics. And yeah, I, maybe we said as much as we wanted. We could go on, but... Yeah, I know, I know about the incident, I can answer this. So I was just wondering, is that something you guys have looked at as another kind of theater? 
Well, I, 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 can, I can answer the part of the question that relates to the incident itself because I'm well acquainted with it, obviously, and then maybe Jerry can take over and answer the other part. But it did, yes, that happened. I'm not really sure when. Uh, uh, somebody jumped over a fence and, and used uh, uh, some kind of uh, acid to, uh, to draw a swastika. Uh, in split uh, on the in, in the stadium but prior to the game that Croatia played, I think it was with Italy. That would be very symbolic. Uh, maybe it was somebody else. I'm not sure. But uh, anyways, this was uh, outlined vaguely. It was not really seen by anybody, or I hope that they, if they saw it, they would abandon the match. But when the match itself was televised. You could see the swastika. It was there. It was in the right, 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 uh, right corner of the field. It was huge. I would say 10 by 10 or something like that. Everybody could see it. Uh, it was there. And it was not there by chance. It was there because of the policies that were implemented in the 19s and the rhetorics and the, the, the radicalization of the political discourse and the flirting with fascism and, and with full-on embracing fascism in, in certain moments uh, of our recent history. So. Um, the, the, the swastika did not fall from the heaven. <laughs> it's a part of the problem. It's a part of our society. And, uh, and obviously when this happens, usually the reaction is, oh my God, I can't believe it. And that is the mainstream reaction to it. Everybody's appalled, but my, it's not surprising to me, unfortunately. It is terrifying, it's, 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 it's awful, but it is the reality. There are these elements in the society that are ready to do something uh, uh, like this, uh, and yeah, yeah, it, it unfortunately happened. It's about somebody else want to talk, talk about this. I mean, it's about who owns the symbols, right? And that at certain stages of modernization, the symbol-making class has to restore some kind of honor to. The, the concept of civic, civil society, right? And one is supposed to be tolerant, you know, of that process of reconstructing history, which of course in the United States has been one of the Trump people's um, flashpoints of, uh, in regard to the American South and so forth and so on. Um, yeah, I was, I was gonna ask a, a question around um, Yeah, yeah. Absorption of, of culture and depoliticization of it, and 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 how, um, if you could maybe speak a little bit to your sort of relation to the Croatian diaspora or like the Croatian cultural center, because of in a way the diaspora played uh, an oversized role in uh, amping up the conflict, funding it. Absolutely, absolutely, the, the, and Canada had a role there. Uh, uh, yes, I mean, uh, the, the diaspora that um, those people who left, there's a number of different waves of uh, immigration from, from the Balkans, but what is regarded as the Croatian diaspora that was established uh, during the Yugoslav state, those people who left the country because they uh, didn't agree with the policies along the ideological lines or uh, uh, wanted uh, to be able to express this, their Croatian nationalism, rather than nationality, because there was no problem with Croatian national identity. It was there. Uh, it was not suppressed. Nationalism was suppressed. So if you wanted to be a Nash Croatian nationalist, you had to 
leave the country. And a lot of people did it for a number of reasons, economic uh, immigration, one of them for sure. Uh, they would then uh, come together in, in community centers uh, and, 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 and kind of try to, to live out this uh, idea of nationalism uh, outside of the country itself. And obviously when the civil war started in Croatia, and I want to I just mention that uh, calling it a civil war is a political statement. This is not something that is a part of the mainstream in Croatia. In Croatia, people don't talk about civil war. They talk about the war for independence, the war yeah. for freedom, the homeland war, homeland. not the civil war. So to say civil war in Croatia, first people would not be sure what you are talking about. Uh, and that is very problematic. But going back to this, uh, what, what you said, um, um, yes, uh, those people who nurtured these ideas of uh, nationalistic ideas uh, outside of, of former Yugoslavia were very much ready to come there <laughs> when these uh, changes uh, started occurring. And when the civil war started, some of them came back physically to fight this war and to fight for, for their ideals. Uh, others would send money, and these are these are, these are huge amounts that, that, that came to Croatia and helped to finance, uh, finance this war. Uh, but Canada had um, uh, this one figure uh, who came back and became the, the Minister of Defense in the first uh, Croatian uh, uh, government. And this is a, an extremely radical uh, political figure that was involved in provoking violence, that was involved in provoking conflict. And he came from Toronto. He had a pizzeria in Toronto for 20 years. It was called Croatia, I believe. That is the, yeah, Croatia. Uh, then he left this uh, lucrative uh, business when the war started and came back to live his fantasy of a, of a fascist and, and, and did that, unfortunately, uh, very well. Can I add, just add a point to that? <clears throat> if you look at the the geopolitical map of Europe now and look at east and west and north and south, it's the former Soviet bloc countries that have the most, including East Germany, that are having the most difficulty in assimilating minorities and ethnic, the, the anger against ethnics. And this is what I'm calling the unpassed, the recovery of the past as a political project, right? And so what you do is in terms of cultural memory or generational memory, you reorganize memory, right, in such a way that it becomes a weapon. Memory becomes a weapon. So in these contexts, I mean, I, I can remember talking to a sociologist back in the, in the, well, it's a side point, that, that when people migrate, even the, even the Germans who were sent by the state to Russia, to the, 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 the Lebensraum. The Lebensraum, too. The, yeah, to, yeah and they became farmers in Russia, and, then, and Stalin gave them their own state, German-speaking state, just that Stalin gave the Jews their own state. You know, what that means is, we'll let you have a state for a little while, you know. Um, and then but, we'll deal with you after and then that. We'll, yeah, then we'll find a, a reason, you know, to figure out how to move the borders around. That's why I talked about the borders. Okay, but the point is, <clears throat> culture begins to dominate the Enlightenment project because people, in terms of cross-cultural, intercultural, multicultural, and the, the question is, c culture becomes a, a site of, of, of combat. 
you know, but also for second and third generation Hungarians, Poles, Indians, you know, Pakistanis. It's, it's the children of the children who begin to realize something about the, 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 the strength of regaining some power of culture. This is why I started out my comment saying, you know, that there's this struggle between the hegemony of culture, whatever that means, and, and state making. And state making. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're and pulling what, what is in, in opposite directions uh, almost to a certain yeah. degree. They're confronting uh, terms in, in, in many ways. And the fascist modern state in Germany was a brilliant construction because it didn't talk about state. It didn't talk about culture. It talked about realm. It talked about something abstract like a realm, right? And which meant that eventually that realm would be, in some militaristic way, would expand all the way to the Middle East. Right? Yeah. And, and, uh, There's no borders to, to would, the realm. Yeah, it's, it's a borderless concept, yes. right? The, the idea of the realm, the Reich. The name of the, 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 the Reich actually means realm. In, in, uh, Just this transition is timeless concept. It, it doesn't end. It yeah. doesn't have an expiry date, and yeah. you can present that uh, transition as something positive, uh, and you can use it uh, to to hide neo-colonial yeah. tendencies, as it was done and still is in the east of of the continent and and southeast of the continent as well. We have got time for two or three more questions. How fast it went. Yeah, exactly. I just wonder if you could The end of it? The beginning of it? Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the idea can be traced back to, to late 18th, mid 18th, uh, 19th century. So the pan South Slavic idea was there before, and we had this after the end of the empires, there was the um, the, the monarchy of, of, of the South Slavs, of the Serbs, Slo uh, Croats, and uh, Slovenians, and later was renamed in a, in a, as a, the monarchy, the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. So that is the first uh, little bit of, 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 of um, statehood in terms of what will follow later on. Uh, then we have the Second World War, where this all falls apart. Uh, and uh, the people, the South Slavic people that were involved in the conflict, that were living there when the conflict started, uh, had a choice. Uh, all of the future republics, I'm talking about now, 90s, uh, had quisling systems, uh, regimes that pledged alliance to, to, to the Nazis and to the fascists. Um, so whoever did not want to participate in that uh, went into the woods, literally, uh, formed the uh, anti-fascist uh, partisan guerrilla-style units that started the struggle. And from this struggle uh, is where, where, where the, 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 little, the, the beginning of the formation of the Socialist uh, Federative Republic of Yugoslavia is is, it's a grassroots problem, uh, program. It's something. It's a statehood uh, developed from 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 the bottom up, uh, uh, 
And then, uh, obviously, uh, as I said, uh, the Communist Party was very much involved in the anti-fascist uh, movement. They were um, big in numbers, but also better organized because they were preparing for this since the beginning of the 20th century with the international uh, communist uh, scene. With, uh, and, and Tito was very much involved with that. Uh, uh, so when, when the war ended, due to the fact that Yugoslavia was liberated uh, by by the struggle of its peoples, not by not by Soviets, right. not by anybody from the West. They liberated their country, and that gave them leverage when negotiating. Yeah, yeah, because the because uh, the thing is, so it is an ideological struggle where on one side you have the fascist, and on the other side you have the anti-fascist, and the fascist regimes in the region were several of them, uh, and, and uh, the struggle is between uh, the anti-fascists and the fascists, but the, the interesting thing is that on the fascist sphere, they, they fight each other along the lines of nationality. So the, f the, the, the fascist regimes in Serbia will fight the fascist regimes in Croatia along the lines of nationality, while the anti-fascist element and the people who were involved in that struggle came together and stayed together. And from this struggle, the people's liberation struggle, as it's called in Yugoslavia, came the country. It was born in, in this struggle, and it, that, that's how it was formed. That is the beginning of it. I, I don't know if this answered the question. Yeah? That's a really good question about, but I would just take it back just quickly to, to the idea of the speed of change. The speed of change, which is dependent on the commodity the, the transportation of oil from Kazakhstan that goes through Romania, goes through um, the southern southern uh, Europe, in order and oil, gas from Russia that's going through the uh, Baltic countries. In other words, and this is where it, it, the identification of the past in the northern Baltic countries with Russia is very very strong, right? This is what Putin is exploiting in the, in the north, because it's very difficult to, for Putin now that, to go beyond the Ukraine into the, 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 the Slavic world or at this present time. But what can happen in the geopolitical sense, you can go through the, nor the north, because they're, they're so dependent on Russian gas and Russian oil, right? Um, so <laughs> the clock, the time clock, is based, what I would say, on commodity transportation of commodity, and the people who are re rebelling against that in the former, in the former communist East Germany, are living in another time clock with another time clock. Yet they're benefiting in modernization with the uh, from the Russian uh, gas and, and oil, right? <laughs> Just like we benefit from the tar sands, you know. So, uh, Time for one or two more questions. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Yes, thank yeah. you.